You're listening to a message from our Sunday morning service at Hayes Hills Baptist Church, where we seek to bring life-changing hope to an ever-changing people through the unchanging gospel. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit hayeshills.com. Our prayer is that this message would serve to equip and empower you to live as a follower of Jesus in conjunction with your belonging to a local body of believers. Well, we're currently walking through our series on 1 Corinthians, which we'll be in for the majority of this year. We'd encourage you to follow along, and we hope that this message serves as a blessing to you. Um, They have these psychopath tests. Have you seen these? Uh, you, You answer some questions to determine whether you are, in fact, a psychopath or not. And I wonder, like, who takes these things? Because, like, if you have an underlying suspicion that you might be a psychopath, like, you are beyond the portion of seeking out an online quiz. Like, you, you need to seek professional help. But apparently people take these things, and, and I, I'm bothered not just by the fact that they exist, but by the fact that they seem terribly inefficient to me. Uh, because I think you could reduce them down to a single question. You could just ask people, do you like correcting others? And if they answer yes, like you're a psychopath, no, no questions asked. Because we know that like there are people in our lives that need correction. Parents, our kids need our correction. Managers and supervisors have to correct members of their team. Uh, we as friends who love our friends and care for them, there are times where we have to gently correct them as well. But it's a miserable experience, isn't it? Correcting someone? I mean, you as a kid, you grow up and your parents say, oh, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And you think that's nonsense until you become a parent. And you have to ground your kid and they miss the party. Or they have to work and earn money not to buy things they want, but to pay restitution for some wrong thing that they've done. Or you have to spank them. Whatever it would be, there is some kind of discipline, some kind of correction. It costs them, but it also hurts you. As managers, when you know you've got to move towards corrective action in the life of one of your team members, you can walk around with a pit in your stomach for weeks, can't you? It's miserable. And so we, we know that correction is necessary, but I am often left in my life wondering, did I, did I do that well? Could I have done that better? How can I be the kind of person that provides correction in the lives of others that that is constructive to them rather than destructive to them. And so, um, if that's you this morning, I just want to encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, If you brought your Bible this morning, I hope you'll turn there. If you've got a digital device that you can use to pull up the Scriptures, I'd encourage you to search for the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's the translation of the Bible I'll be reading from this morning. And so you can search ESV, 1 Corinthians 1, and you'll be able to follow right along with me. Uh, we're starting our study of the book of first, or the letter of 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, we're going to be in this letter for most of the year. And as we look at these uh, first few verses this morning of chapter 1, uh, we're going to see the Apostle Paul speaking to a church at Corinth that is a mess. And Paul is going to have to offer correction. And through his example... My hope this morning is that we will come to better understand what it looks like to offer correction that reflects both the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. 
And so I'm going to begin reading there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 1. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, and he writes this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this is God's word to us today. And what makes these verses so remarkable is what follows. In verse 10, it becomes clear that the church at Corinth is a mess. They, they are fraught with division. Uh, there are divisions over doctrine. There are divisions, there are factions forming over uh, members of the church's preferred Bible teacher. Uh, they've been given spiritual gifts, but they're abusing those spiritual gifts. Uh, there are divisions over levels of income, the rich and the poor. They even have things so bad, there's like a premium subscription service to the Lord's Supper where the rich come and they gather and they eat wonderful food while the poor are left to fight for scraps and leave hungry. Uh, things are so bad in Corinth that they are tolerating a kind of sexual immorality among their membership, Paul says in chapter 5 verse 1, that even the pagans wouldn't have patience for. And so things in Corinth, they are a mess. They're going to have to be corrected. And yet, we don't get a sniff of that in these first nine verses, do we? Uh, Paul is writing to offer correction, but in these introductory verses, I pray that we will learn some helpful tips and practices for how we might move to offer correction in the lives of those around us. And the first thing I want you to see here in verse 4 is that Paul is praying for the Corinthians regularly. He's praying for them regularly. Notice there, verse 4, he writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He's praying for the Corinthians regularly. But not only is he praying for them regularly, what kind of prayer is he praying? He's praying a prayer of thanks. And this is, this is paradigm changing if you really grab a hold of it. Because, I mean, what a wonderful Pauline policy, if we would just put it into practice, that before we move to correct someone, we would take time to pray for them. That, that we understand, maybe, maybe it feels really urgent to move with correction in their life, but if it's an urgent situation, how much more urgent is it for us to take time to pray? And so Paul is praying, but what kind of prayer is he praying for the Corinthians as he prays for them? He's not praying, God, these guys are a mess. Help them get their act together. And he's not praying, God, I've got to move to correct them. Would you help me to go? Would you, would you give me wisdom? Would you help my tongue to be a tree of life? Would, would you help me to speak in a way that reflects your, your truth and your grace? 
Those are great things to pray. But that's not what Paul is praying for the church of Corinth here in verse 4. Paul is giving thanks for them. And I wonder if you find that as convicting as I do. <laughs> because it's easy, isn't it, when you, when you see a weakness in someone to begin to focus on their flaws. Uh, you begin to see everything that is wrong with them and you quickly become unable to see anything that is right. And Paul is stopping to, to pray for the church at Corinth, not just that God would help him as he goes to correct them, but he is pausing to give thanks to God for them. And I'll tell you, as I look at my life, I find that often when I have the courage to move to correct someone, it's not because I see a person who has a problem, it's because I see a person who's become my problem. <laughs> uh, you know, there's the, the guy at work who's always pushing his responsibilities off to others. I see it, it bothers me. I begin to associate this man with his sinful and slothful attitude. But I don't move to correct him when he's pushing his responsibilities onto other people. <laughs> but once he pushes responsibilities onto me, then I pounce. Not because I love him, but because I love myself and I don't want to take on his responsibilities. I'm, I'm moving to correct, not because I love others, but because I love myself. And so often, for, for many of us, that's the way we move with correction in our lives. We only move when someone becomes our problem. And we begin to see their flaws, and everything they do looks worse and worse. And so, for some of you, it's someone at work that you just feel like they are a string of endless problems. And you can no longer see any redeemable qualities in them. You wonder to yourself, why did I hire them? What did I see? Because there is nothing good in this person. Others of you, you, you probably wouldn't have the courage to speak it out loud this morning, but you've certainly spoken it in your heart, and every time you do, it pains you. But you've begun to see one of your own kids as a problem. Like they've got some flaws, some areas that need correction, and you, you just correct from like sun up to sun down, and you you have corrected them so long, so many times, that, that you've begun to see this kid as a problem. You, you know that they're a gift from God to you, that they were given to you to, to care for, to shepherd, to point them towards Jesus, but you've just kind of lost the ability to see redeemable things in them. And so how would it change us if we, like Paul, would stop to pray for those we're going to correct. But in that prayer, we would stop to give thanks for them. Because notice how Paul does this, and, and what it does is it changes his entire tone as he approaches the Corinthians. It gives him the ability to not only see their gaffes that need to be corrected, but also their gifts that are evidence of God's grace. Notice there in verses 4 and 5, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Why does he give thanks? Well, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. How does he know they've been given grace in Christ Jesus? Well, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. They've been given spiritual gifts. It's an evidence of God's grace in their life. And as Paul pauses before he moves to correct them, to pray for them and to give thanks to God for them, it forces him to see evidence of God's grace in their life, and it changes his approach. 
And that is true for you and me as well. If you will pause and give thanks to God for the person you are moving to correct, you will inevitably be forced to see evidence of either God's common grace in their life or God's saving grace in their life. And you know what I mean when I use that phrase, common grace? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus says this. He says, uh, your father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, God's gift of sunshine and rain are given to everyone. They are common to all. It's common grace. In the same way, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so every skill, every talent, everything that is good and praiseworthy in anyone is a gift of God's common grace. And so, you know, you think of Annie at the office. She's an agnostic, but she has gifts for administration. Where did they come from? Came from God. Or Marty, who who lives down the street, he's a Muslim, but he's got a knack for machinery. He can take just about any machine apart, fix it, put it back together, and it's in working order. Where did he get that from? It's from God. And so when you pause and you reflect on the person you are moving to correct, what you will inevitably see is evidence of God's common grace in their life that you can give thanks to God for. And it'll change your perspective, I promise. Because that employee that you feel like, man, they are just a string of endless problems. Why did I hire this person? As you give thanks to God for them, you're forced to see, oh yeah, they actually do have some talents. There is a reason I hired them originally. Maybe they're not as as miserable as I thought. Or that neighbor who has guests who often park in front of your driveway and it drives you crazy. Like you're just starting to fume and you just consider them some inconsiderate brute, you know. When, When you stop and you give thanks to God for them, but before you go to correct... You, you might remember that when you were out of town, they were kind to collect your packages from your doorstep. And there was that time you were sick and they brought you soup. And you see kindness in their life. You, you know it's a gift of God's common grace. And so maybe you don't approach them like they're an inconsiderate brute, but maybe you, you approach them like maybe they're just ignorant of the situation. You see how understanding and seeing What is good in someone changes the tone of the corrective conversation. And that's when we're talking non-believers who've just been recipients of common grace. How much more does this change once we're talking believers in Jesus Christ who have been recipients of God's saving grace given to the children of God? Because notice here in the text what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, uh, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. You have these spiritual gifts. What have they done? Verse 6, the testimony about Christ has been confirmed among you. I can tell you're a Christian. Who, verse 2, have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Set apart in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this gives Paul tremendous hope. Notice what he says in verse 8. 
He says, this means Jesus will sustain you to the end. You will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Corinthians are great? No, verse 9, because God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, here's, here's the reality of the situation. What would we be tempted to say of the church at Corinth? I think what most of us would be tempted to do, if we looked at a church like this, they're divided over doctrine. They, they are, have factions forming over their preferred Bible teachers. They've got the Lord's Supper wrong. They are tolerating a kind of sexual immorality that would make even the bra most brazen pagan blush. I think we'd look at a church like that and we'd say, hey, if you're acting like this, Corinth, we're pretty sure you're not even Christians. We're pretty sure everybody needs to leave this church, get out of here, because this is a toxic situation. That's what I think many of us would be tempted to say. What would the discernment ministry folks be tempted to say of this church? They'd say, this place is irredeemable, get out. But what does the Apostle Paul see in this church? What does the Apostle Paul say about this church? Because he pauses to pray and to give thanks to God for them, he sees evidence of God's saving grace in their life, and it changes the tone of the conversation when he offers correction, doesn't it? He says, instead, notice there, verse 8, I am confident that God will sustain you to the end, that on the day of judgment you will be guiltless. Isn't that a wonderful thought? They're an absolute train wreck. And yet Paul's confidence is in the gospel. His confidence isn't in the, how good the Corinthians are, but in how great and how gracious his God and their God is. And so he can say, look, I know that he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so church at Corinth, I have this confidence as I come to offer correction that the Lord will sustain you to the end. You see how that changes? The kind of conversation the Apostle Paul has with the church at Corinth? I, I love what John Newton has written. He's most famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace, but he was also a prolific letter writer. And the letter of his that I've read the most often is simply entitled On Controversy. And in that letter, John Newton writes about how we are to engage when we have brothers or sisters in Christ that we are engaged in a controversy with them. Maybe, maybe we're at odds with them. And we think they're, they're errant in their doctrine or their practice. And in the letter, Newton just gives practical wisdom to a friend on how to engage in such controversies. I've read it time and time again because it's just helpful to my heart. I need it regularly. Commend it to you. But the part of that letter that sticks with me the most is the section in which uh, John Newton says this, of, of the, the person that you would need to correct that is a believer in Jesus Christ. You can see evidence of God's grace in their life. He writes this. He says, the Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while you will meet in heaven, 
He will then be dearer to you than the dearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. Isn't that a great thought? That, that when I find myself crossways with another believer in Jesus Christ, when we're in conflict, when there is controversy, what I've got to remember is that if I can see God's saving grace in their life, a day is coming when on the, the final day they will be guiltless in Christ, I will be guiltless in Christ, and that person who, who might generate a lot of frustration in my life right now, they will be dearer to me then than the dearest person is to me on earth now. And if I have that in my mind, if you have that in yours, it'll change the tone of the conversation, won't it? The things that come out of your mouth and the things that stay in it. You see, um, Paul has great hope for the church at Corinth, not because of their goodness, but because of the goodness and the graciousness of God. And that's why he doesn't drop the hammer here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, but instead he offers encouragement. Notice verse 2, he says, uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. You've been set apart in Christ Jesus. Notice then verse 5, he says, look, you've been enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. You've got tremendous gifts of speech and knowledge. He says, verse 7, you're not lacking any gift. He's given all kinds of encouragement to the Corinthians. That's an important lesson for us because there's a question we ask often in the Kaler home, and it is this one. Was that a good choice or a bad choice? Uh, we ask that often of our kids, and several years ago, um, my oldest son, Ezra, had made a particularly good choice, and I asked him the question. I said, hey, son, was that a good choice or a bad choice? And he looked at me kind of puzzled and confused, and he said, uh, a bad choice? And what hit me then is probably what hits you now. What a terrible parent I am. Like, I only asked my son that question when he made a bad choice. I was quick and consistent to offer correction, but I was slow and irregular to offer encouragement. And it was shaping my son. And I had to repent of it. And what is true of me is true of all of us, that we ought to be a, cultivating an, an environment in our home, an environment in our church, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in which we are generous and consistent in our encouragement to others so that when it comes time to offer correction to them, it can be received with confidence knowing that you love them. Um, but I want you to notice here finally this morning that even the encouragement Paul offers is corrective. Even the encouragement he offers here in these verses is corrective. Notice there in verse 2, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, what? Together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You're not special, Corinth. <laughs> You're set apart in Christ Jesus yet, but yes, but there shouldn't be factions and divisions among you. You're not superior to anyone else. You have the same Lord. You've been called to be one, to be united in Christ. 
Then he says, verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You didn't earn it because you're special. It was given to you, Corinth. It's a gift of God's grace. He says, um, verse, verse 7, or let's go verse 5 first. He says that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. You've, you've been given tremendous gifts of speech and knowledge. But the verb there, enriched, is passive. They haven't developed these gifts of speech and knowledge themselves. They were given to them. They were enriched by someone outside of them, by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, verse 7, you're not lacking in any gift, which is great, but where do these gifts come from? It's bracketed, verse 6 and verse 8. And verse 6 and 8 both feature the same word in the Greek. You can't see it in the ESV. Maybe in your translation they did a better job of it. But you might want to underline it in verse 6. It says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed. You could underline that word confirmed among you. Then drop down to verse 8. Who Jesus will sustain. Underline that word sustain. Same word in the Greek to the end. And Paul's point is this. Your faith from beginning to end is a gift of Jesus Christ. It was confirmed at the beginning by him, and you will be sustained to the end by him. It is not about you, Corinth. It is about the grace of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Amen? Because Corinth is a mess, and you and I are often a mess too. But Paul's hope doesn't rest in their goodness, but in the goodness of God and what he is going to do in their heart. Paul's confidence rests in the gospel. Because after all, isn't that what the gospel teaches us? That those in Corinth back then and every Christian here today, we are all sinners deserving of death and hell. But the good news of the gospel is that God in his love sent Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross in our place, was buried, rose in victory from death. And now offers forgiveness of sins, eternal life, adoption as the children of God to all of us who are good enough? No. But to all of us who would put our hope and our trust not in who we are and what we've done, but in who he is and what he has done. And that is the good news of the gospel. And the, the, the convicting reality for me is so often I go to correct others with an anti-gospel that says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and I'm going to unload on you because I see everything that's wrong with you and what you've got to do to be right is to do right. But, but a gospel lens says, hey, I'm going to move towards a brother or sister in Christ with this great hope that I see evidence of God's saving grace in them and that I can speak to them and I can trust that the Lord who began their journey of faith, will bring it to completion at the end, will sustain them to the very end, so that on that judgment day, they, like me, will stand guiltless in the presence of our Lord. And so make no mistake here, the church at Corinth is a mess. We've summarized their sin and the seriousness of the situation, and Paul sees it. But before Paul moves to correct them, he pauses to pray for them. And not just to pray that they'd get their act together or that he'd speak wisely. He prays a prayer of thanksgiving for them. It enables his eyes not only to see their gaffes that need to be corrected, but their, their gifts that are evidence of God's grace. And it gives him tremendous hope for those at Corinth, not because of who they are, but because of who God is.
So may we be a people like that, Hazels. May we be a people who would give thanks before we give correction.